Yasuki Abashijiro, how may I help you? Hi, um, yeah, can I make a reservation, please? Absolutely not, sir. We don't take reservations. You'll have to contact your hotel's concierge, and he will contact us. Oh, um, okay, I'll talk to our concierge. Uh, I also wanted to ask about your menu. I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, we don't have a menu. We simply serve the best sushi according to what ingredients are available to us on each day. Uh, okay, I see. Um, what about your appetizers, like, um... Desserts and drinks and stuff? We don't serve any of this. They they would just get in the way of our sushi. Uh, okay. Righto. That totally makes sense. Um, how much does um, a meal go for there? 40,000 yen. 40,000 yen. Okay, that, that just sounds like so much, but I'm sure once I convert it, that, that'll come right down. $400. Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. Um, Prepare, sir. Oh, mm, okay. Yeah, well, I guess it will be worth it. You know, I'll be able to put, like, pictures up of your food on, on my Insta, you know? Oh, no, no. We recommend not taking pictures of the food. But if you want, we would be happy to take a commemorative picture of you in the doorway as you leave. Okay, alright. What kind of place are you running? This just better be the best sushi I've ever had in my life. In this episode of The Cult Request, we talk about great album openers in our Tavern Talk segment. We actually forgot to mention the names of some of the songs, would you believe it? But they're all listed in the show notes. Our main discussion is about Juro Dreams of Sushi, and we finish by introducing the subject of our next episode, Fight Club The Book. Hello, and welcome to The Cult Request. We are but humble adventurers, and today... We are reminded that our standards are inadequate. With me, as always, are Peter, Kenichiwa, and Bario. Damn, I don't have any. You <laughs> <laughs> taught that. Yes. So hello. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Inan. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. I am excited. Today we're discussing Jiro Dreams of Sushi, a documentary film about a Japanese sushi master. The last time we did a documentary... You guys literally hated every second of it, and, well, I had fun. <laughs> Do you guys think we have another man-on-a-rope situation on our hands? No, no, no. It's, it's, very, it's very hard to go that far. Cool, okay. We'll get to Jiro and uh, all of his friends in a bit. Let's do some tavern talk. As you all know, we enjoy discussing music. We love bringing up our favorite artists, our favorite songs and stuff like that. And I think we have a bit more music talk left in us after the Kid A episode. So today, we've decided to talk about our favorite album openers. Kid A had an amazing opener in Everything in Its Right Place, and that got us thinking about other album openers. These, of course, are first songs in the album or dedicated intro tracks that kick off the album and set the tone. We'll each bring up a few of our favorite ones, we'll give them a quick listen, see how they feel. And there's a bunch of different types of, of album openers. There are songs that kick off the album strongly, there are quiet songs that get you in the mood. So I'm interested to see what you guys like. And maybe you, the listeners at home, can send us your favorite album openers, we'll find the time to play them and see what we think about them. Uh, all the ways to contact us are in the show notes, as they always have been. How how many have you guys brought? I, I have like three cool openers. I have so many because like um, a lot of the bands that I listen to tend to just have good album openers. Yeah, I've got heaps, but I mean, I can nail it down to probably two or three. 
I also got a lot, but yeah, we can do three. Cool. I'm going to start with Alice Cooper, a song called Under My Wheels from the album Killer from 1971. Because I think it's it's a great, great album opener. And I think that most people think that, you know, Alice Cooper's music is all kind of like poison. You know, it, I think it's the their biggest hit. I don't know that song and I'm not really familiar with him at all. So I might be a good control group here. Cool. That's a, that's a good test. Because like, I, I think there's a good chance that you might like it because you like 70s rock. So I'm interested to know what you think about this. The later Alice Cooper stuff is okay, but I'm a huge fan of the first 10 or so Alice Cooper albums. The, the 70s and the early 80s stuff is really great. And Under My Wheels is the first song on Killer, the, the fourth album by Alice Cooper. Then it was still a band. A great rock song, a great way to open the album. This one starts with a bit of a bang. So much groove. I love it. This is how you kick off an album. I think this song sets a tone right away, like you get the electric guitars, the drums, rock and roll, and then like after eight seconds you drop off, Mr. Cooper starts singing, and you you already know that you're into like this fun, great rock album. This is great, yeah. yeah. That's actually a good start to an album. It is. And this is totally different than, than what people expect from Alice Cooper, I think, at least today. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. Yeah, that's really good. The early stuff is is just fun rock, you know. It's a bit deeper. There's like a, there's a few concept albums there as well, but it's it's much simpler. It's much more seventies. It's much much more fun, I think. So my favorite song is actually an opener, but um, I'll do that last. <laughs> I'll keep some intrigue. Um, but this one is something that's sort of been hovering around my top few songs. It's my favorite by this artist. It's um it's off the album I've talked about before, which is Plastic Ono Band by John Lennon. It's just it starts out with these sort of it's like a it's like a it's like a gong sound and it sort of just sits there for a while as we're listening to now. And then it sort of just busts in straight into the song and the song is fantastic. The song's like one of the best. Um I, I would say it it would be my top three songs from either the Beatles or a Beatle or yeah. So anything to do with that. So it's, it's top tier for me. like it a lot like it starts quiet with the gongs and, and it's kind of ominous but then this this I, I really like this as an album opener i'd expect the rest of the album to be kind of like this not, like not too loud not too dirty uh no there's some loud and dirty songs actually um mm. but they still feel very coherent as an album that's why that's cool. like part of the reason why i like it but it, it doesn't go straight to it. It, it, it builds up. So um, it does feel like a long sort of story. 
I remember I I gave this album a go once, and I remember I like the 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 sound felt too thin for me. But this sounds good. Hmm. I should give this a, a, another go. Yeah, I recommend it. I don't know. It was like 10 years ago. So, you know, a lot has changed since. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, I don't know if I would say a breakup, but it's a good introspective album. I think the best breakup album that I know is the one by John Lennon, 74. Uh, sorry, not John Lennon. Um, Bob Dylan, 74. Mm. Blood on the Tracks. I think that's like the definitive breakup song. But this one's a good sort of um, down in the dumps kind of album. Are you familiar with the singer LP? LP? Yeah. No, not at all. Never heard so, of him. So, yeah, I really enjoy her, her voice. You probably you're, you're probably familiar with it. Like the whole vibe of the album is very melancholic and and dirty, like it has like these dirty qualities. And the first one does a really a really good job with that. It's called Muddy Waters. I think it's a cover. Very atmospheric. I really like it. It kind of reminds me of Hoser. I love it. It's actually quite quite nice. It's very atmospheric. Yeah. It's a very good way to start an album, I'd say. Yeah. Good way to end it or a good way to start it, I'd say. What's the idea behind an opener? I mean, it's probably open for interpretation, but do you, do you blast out your best song? Do you do your, the one... Like, how do you set the stage? I actually love love it when the the, the best song is, is saved for, for last. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's but fair. But it also depends on, like, what kind of genre you're playing. It, it really depends on a lot of things. Yeah. Like, I, I guess you need to have a good opener we, i think we all agree that the opener shouldn't be the best song in the album right well like it probably should be something that sets the mood but it shouldn't be the best one and i don't think it should be the last one either i think it will probably be like you know like a good album i guess kind of takes you on a journey and so you got like ups and downs this isn't actually like a song well i do love this song but it's not um, it's more of just an example of how to do an album opener and how to structure this the album in general is the Led Zeppelin 4 album, like the untitled album, where they started off with... God, if, if I screw up what song they start off, off with, I'm pretty sure it's... <laughs> um, is it, it's rock and roll, right? Let me tell you. Um, nope. It's... Wait, wait. It's... Um, <laughs> right? Uh, what song's that? Yeah, Black Dog. Black Dog. Okay, yeah. I was thinking yep. of that tune. Um, okay, so they started off with Black Dog, which is like one of those call and response songs. It's a, it's not a serious song in terms of it can be sort of like deployed just to pump people up. So I think I feel like that's kind of the purpose of the first song. Like it tonally, it needs to sort of engage people, even if it's not the um, tightest song on the album. And then they have like Stairway, which is like what people consider like the best song. They have that sort of like hidden in like number four or number five. And then the way they end it is with like a really sort of like repetitive, evolving sort of circular riff. 
which is the when the levy breaks. Yeah. And that's meant to that's put you in a daze for a little bit. So it's not a too intricate song or anything like that to end it out. It's more of like just a raw sort of feeling song. I think that's the way I would do it. If I if I had those songs in the mix, I reckon that's the way to put it in. Yeah, I totally agree. In the end, when the levy breaks is 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 a perfect closer. Like it is, it's a seven minute trance. I love it. My next one is a BB King song. It's uh, from Live at the Regal, which is a live album. I've been listening to this album since I was around 20. And this is one of the best album openers ever, I think. Like when I listen to this album, I think about how one day I'll talk with someone about album openers and I'll bring this up. <laughs> so this is the perfect moment for this. <laughs> and BB King, of course, is, is a blues and rock and roll artist, a great guitar player. And Live at the Regal, kicks off with a very energetic song. It starts with introducing Baby King, and the audience is excited, and then all together, the band kicks off, like the drums and the bass and, and this cool brass section, and then King jumps in with this amazing sounding guitar, and this all leads into this really fun, really classic album. Here it is. I'm imagining like a machine starting up. Ladies and gentlemen, how about a nice warm round of applause? to welcome the world's greatest blues singer, the king of the blues, B.B. King! So much energy, and his guitar comes in in just a second. Doesn't that just sound great? Man, very tight. Very tight. That's the first time he's played that night. Very tight. Every day, every day I have the blues. Every day. And obviously, like the rest of the album, there's quieter songs, there's slower songs and everything, but this is, you know, they're, they're just not letting you wait a second. That's nice. Just bust right into it. I really, really recommend this album. Uh, I think it's there's around eight songs there. Just a, one of the best blues rock and roll albums I know. And the guitar sound. Man, oh man. My, oh my. That <laughs> takes me back to the bayou. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That was good. Yeah. My next one is, I only discovered this album like late last year. And I don't really know this artist that well. His name is um, Dave Matthews. I, I know the name. I'm not like oblivious to his... I know he's like well-known and stuff, but like to say I know like anything about him because I wouldn't recognize him on the street. The one I'm looking at is a 2007 one. Well, I guess we'll just listen to it, but it's like a well-oiled machine just starting up and then it just gets you hyped.
And that's when it oh just jumps God. into the song. That's nice. Wow. That was, yeah. that was, that was awesome. Uh, yeah, that was pretty good listening to it, actually. I was like, wow. Oh, damn. Yeah. Like, I didn't know where this was going because I don't know any Dave Matthews stuff at all. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect in, in terms of, like, the genre at all, even. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this was, like, a long, confident build-up, and uh, there's a nice payoff in the end. <laughs> it, yeah, there is a payoff when it sort of just... It, he finds the beat early where he's sort of... There is, like, a drum sort of beat. But then he starts doing his um, sort of oohs and yeahs and um, stuff, and you kind of lose it. It started becomes very lucid again, and then he kind of mm. puts his foot down, and it all sort of jumps into like a revolving like beat again. It's very it's very satisfying when it all sort of comes together. Yeah, so suddenly everything like clears up, and there's yeah. I'm sure people know this song, but it's it's really good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very satisfying. Okay, so. I'll take us a bit to the metal realm. Um, oh. Yeah. So one of my favorite bands uh, that Inon actually introduced about 15 years ago <laughs> is System of a Down. And their style really changed throughout their albums. The last two, it's a bit more melodic, I think. Yeah. So the two last albums are called Mesmerize and then there's Hypnotize. And I'll play the the first song from the fir- from that first album mesmerize the, the the vibe here is completely different from everything we heard heard so far like it's not it's not meant to ease you into the album system of a down wants to shake you up like it wants to to surprise you and the the intro here is really short and then it dives into into another song and i'll try to play just the start of the next one so you'll kind of feel the the transition and then I'm gonna cool. play the last song from the last album, and and they, I don't, I think it's like really beautiful how they closed this dual album, recalling the first, um, the first one. So this okay, is cool. the first one. Well, I'm gonna stop it here, but uh, but that's kind of like it's very like nice melodic, and then it goes down, and you kind of start hearing the distortion, and then like just goes directly to the guitars and kind of like blows you away. So like that's a good opener, not by it being like something that is really extraordinary, but by simply like creating what the the artist meant to do. Like they want 
to kind of, you know, throw you into that battlefield straight away. Um, so that does really, really good work with that. If you know the first three System of a Down albums, they don't take even a second to start. They just go directly into the noise and messiness and, and distortion. And here you got like this one and a half minute of melodies, which is something you've never heard from System of a Down. And then they trick you and go back into the distortion. <laughs> I don't mind it, actually. That's, um, yeah, that's good. I, I, I don't know much about them, but um, going just off that, it actually sounds like something I'd like. The next thing that I want to play is from the middle of the last song of the second album. And I think it just connects beautifully to the first one. Ah, I love that. That's really great. Like, the, the opener for Mesmerize is great, and then they use this, yeah. like they do this callback, this loud callback, to, to finish Hypnotize, right? Yeah. To, to close Hypnotize. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know, it just takes me so far ahead. That, that, you know, when they, it's like the same lyrics, it's the same melody, but it's completely different. Like, the, the opener is kind of very mellow and maybe sad, maybe, I don't know, like more introverted and then in hypnotize just kind of blows all over he's yelling and you know the guitars and whatnot just yeah really good stuff i really like this yeah cool all right so this is probably the most cliche choice ever so this is an acdc song and they have a bunch a bunch of great openers like uh, honestly almost on each album when i was looking for uh, songs to play today I went over my library on Google Play, and when I came to ACDC, there were so many to choose from, and I think there's one that's so cliche, but it's so perfect. Yep. You guys ready for this? This opens their first album, High Voltage. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't expect a, a wildly genius, complicated guitar riff from ACDC, right? It, it's just a power chord. <laughs> like, it couldn't be any simpler than yeah. this. But it doesn't get any better than this. 
Like the guitar starts playing and you're like, okay, I'll give this a chance, I'll give this a go. And then the bass drum kicks in and you're already shaking your head or tapping your foot. It's uncontrollable. And, and for a fairly simple, catchy rock song, it's five minutes long, but it's pure rock. And it opens this album and it basically opens ACDC's career just perfectly. It's a long way to the top if you wanna rock and roll. Yeah. So you, this is controversial because in the um, on the album Highway to Hell, yeah. Highway to Hell is also an opener. So, but I prefer this song actually. Uh, I do too. High Voltage, uh, the the album it's on, uh, one of my favorite ACDC albums. Man, it's an opener. How much energy this has! All right. So this is my favorite song, and it happens to be an album opener. I th- I think it is okay as an album op- opener. Um, but the the small sort of guitar part helps at the start. If it if it didn't have this bit, I would say it's just an okay album <laughs> opener. But because because it has got this little intro, it's um it's not too bad. But the song is fantastic. It's like a ten minute song, isn't it? Yeah. That's a way to start the album with ten minutes. Uh, that's a great song though. Well, the funny thing about this sort of song and album, right, is before this you had the first four Zeppelins, the one, two, three, and Untitled, and they were just, they were all hits. I mean, number three got a little bit of backlash, but besides that, all hits. Then they went a bit more experimental in the next two with Houses of the Holy and Physical Graffiti, but overall, uh, once people came to their senses, they realized (laughs) these were still perhaps even um, their best albums. And then this, I, I would imagine if I was sitting there in 76 listening to this song, I would have thought maybe they've just released their best album. I've listened to 10 minutes of it, and it's the best 10 minutes of Led Zeppelin ever. Maybe this is their best album. But the album does go off a cliff a little bit. <laughs> Actually, that's a bit harsh. It doesn't go off a cliff, but it's um, it's far below... Um, there are other albums for me. And it has a good guitar sound. Yeah. It's a tour de force of yeah, really guitars. Good. But um, there's a lot of sort of beats there that just sort of don't work as well as a lot of their previous albums. But for 10 minutes, we had the thought that Zeppelin were, um, were going to release another, you know, um, crazy album. First time I listened to this song, I, I, like, I couldn't avoid the thought that... Out of all the Zeppelin that I know, and I, I basically know only the first four albums, but out of all of the Zeppelin mm. I know, this song is the one that reminds me the most of Iron Maiden. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they'd, yeah. they'd say sometimes that they, this was a huge inspiration to them. Because it doesn't exactly sound like like them, but it's it's close. It's really, it's really a precursor to Iron Maiden. A great song, a great way to open an album. Yeah, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a slog of a song in terms of it, not even just because of its length, but they, just the way they're playing guitar, it gets more mm. desperate. The singing gets a little bit more stressed. Um, the bass is a little bit rougher. The drumming is more loose. It sort of, um, it sort of not falls apart, but definitely, um, def- it definitely shows wear and tear along yeah. the song which is something I probably would prefer to have at the end of an album. 
but it, I think it still works as an open. It's a bit of a gamble <laughs> to start with ten minutes. <laughs> it is a gamble. Let's uh, maybe they knew they had a half baked album. <laughs> they thought let's just suck yeah. them out of it. <laughs> right, so let's stop talking and enjoy the last eight minutes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Barrio, do you want to finish this off? Ooh, have an album um, opener for a segment closer. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Let's let's t- let's make it exotic a bit. Let's take a Hebrew song. There's a band, I guess, called the Porcupines. Hadobanim. The Porcupines. Right? The Porcupines. Yeah. Yeah. And they are really cool. They don't play anymore. They used to be big here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Locally, it's, it's, it's very yeah. small on a global scale. <laughs> yeah, but but here they were they were kind of big. Um and. Like, I don't like a lot of their albums, but the last one that they did before they broke up was really great. And I always admired how they opened it because it's kind of different from what we heard so far, I guess, where there's kind of atmosphere building. They just go right to it. But, you know, it's um, one of the songs that from the first note that I hear, it just makes me happy because it's kind of, it brings Mm -hmm. it all. Mm, this is nice. There, are you enjoying this gibberish? <laughs> yeah, it's not bad, actually. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't listen to lyrics on most songs, yeah. so. I, I don't know their music too much. But I think I've seen them live a couple of times, and they were pretty fun. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I guess they're not awesome, but they're fun. You know, start a rock band and to sing in Hebrew, that limits your potential demographic so much. <laughs> like, no one's going to listen to you around the world. No, I could imagine. If you, if you just had the best, if you just had the best musicians. You have to be phenomenal. You'd have you could be phenomenal and still get worldwide recognition. Uh, maybe I'm too hopeful. Like I think that they they thought what we do locally, locally we can do the best we can. We will probably like they they were probably aware that they they don't have any chance to make it like on a global. Yeah, scale. that's true. So it's, it makes sense to start mm. with a local. Yeah, market. be the biggest fish in the small yeah. pond or whatever the saying is. Talking about fish. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Um, I may I please beg you for one more. I forgot one that is just I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't have it. There was one I was sure you were gonna play, so I didn't play. Oh. Can I guess? Uh, yeah. Is it another Zeppelin? No, one? it's not a Zeppelin one. Oh, I was so I'm just gonna say I was Song sure you were gonna. Same? No, um, good oh. times, bad times. Perfect, oh, yeah. perfect That's a album good opener. That was a good because that was a good one because it showed people were just amazed by John Bonham's right foot in the first fifteen seconds, and everyone knew he was the drummer. So uh, that was a good moment. But this one is much more important. This one makes that one look just absolutely minor. Um, <laughs> anyway, this one actually Bruce Springsteen talks about at the Rock and Roll oh. Hall of Fame. Um, I forget what he says exactly, but it's like it burst, it, it it kicked open the door to your mind or something like that. And I think it's, yeah, it's amazing. 
Yeah, I know this one. Yeah, no, it's, not um, bad at all. I, 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 I thought I looked up the album and I saw it wasn't the first song, but um, <laughs> I must be a mistake. I must have had a playlist or something of that album, which I just put in a random order. But um, I mean, you put this song anywhere on an album, and it's and it's gonna be um, amazing. But it, it does. It's nice to put it. This is one of the rare exceptions where I think it's nice that he put the best album, uh, best song in the, at the start of the album. How's it feel? <laughs> like a rolling stone. Everyone has a Bob Dylan impression. <laughs> oh, I, I have a good one, but it can only be done in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Better give us your impression. Hey, beware, dog. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Not bad at all. <laughs> they said, "You man, yeah, yeah." <laughs> it's at some point it just becomes Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, <laughs> <laughs> I'll fight the fight. I'll fight the fight. How does it feel to fight the fight? <laughs> Speaking about fish. <laughs> <laughs> We recently watched a documentary called Gio- uh, Oh my god, I forgot his name. Jory, not Jory. Jordi. I G- always G- forget. Don't it. tell him. Don't tell him. Jiro. Jiro. No, okay. Jiro. <laughs> I, I get it wrong all the time. I'm like, oh yeah. So Jiro dreams of sushi. Anyway, so the movie um, Jiron, Jiro, Jiro, Jerry. <laughs> so yeah, it's such a slippery word. I don't know. Jeremy why dreams of sushi. <laughs> <laughs> That's a totally different movie. <laughs> yeah, so we watched Zero Dreams of Sushi, which is a documentary from 2011 about a very uh, respected sushi chef. I like to call him a sushi master. Okay, okay. We can we can go with that. So here's a sushi master, a chef master. He's a, he's a chef master. It kind of talks about his uh, devotion and, and his dedication to that and it also talks to both his sons and several of his employees and disciples, I guess, or students. <laughs> yeah, what you would know? you call them? Apprentices? Apprentices, maybe. No, I like disciples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Not the best choice. It's going to, like, I just imagine, like, they'll be like, oh, um, you know, always, always put a heavy block on the rice cooker John <laughs> 10 comma 4 that's, that's how serious <laughs> he is about, like uh, about making sushi the gospel of Jiro <laughs> I guess like part, part of, of the journey that we're that we're taking into the movie is also like um, from the side of uh, a food critic who's really enthusiastic regarding Jiro's work I think his name is Yamamoto I don't remember um, I'm gonna say his name is Yamamoto. It's Yamamoto. <laughs> yes, um, Masa, Masahiro Masuhiro, Yama- Masahiro Yamamoto. I forgot about it right right away, but I think it's important to note that Jiro opened his place and he's worked there since I don't know the 40s, and he's like 84 now. I'm sorry, he's 84 at the time of filming the movie. He's now 94. Yeah, he's worked there he's every day working? since. Yes, yep. 94, and he still works there. 
and he basically does the same thing every day and the the restaurant he he runs is world famous I, I think Obama ate there a couple of years ago oh, or wow. something I want to see that photo yeah I'm just I'm just watching a picture oh wow I'm just looking at Barack Obama eating there who's he with he's with um Japanese people yes <laughs> that's what I was after <laughs> Is he with Japanese people? <laughs> <laughs> Surprising. That just seems like... <laughs> no, I, oh, it wow. says somewhere with, in Wikipedia, the Prime Minister of Japan, I don't remember. He doesn't look like a guy off the street. They said, <laughs> oh, you look hungry, and they, got, and they brought him in. He definitely looks important. I came at it... I actually really felt like watching it. I love these documentaries where people are just really good at one thing, and like often it's like making handbags like a leather maker leather leather crafting guy or it's like a wood <laughs> uh, like a where is my english today it's like a guy making a boat out of wood and you just see him like sawing wood and making boats and, you know so if the point hasn't come across yet <laughs> i i like people who are good at things and watching them do it because i know i could never do it and This is one of those ones where like I don't I don't really give a toss about the food but it's nice seeing someone like give a shit about like <laughs> everything in the process yeah like it's just something fantastic about someone that cares so much about this and um, here's the bombshell I'm gonna drop yeah I don't eat sushi I actually really? kind of really don't like really? it yeah like I wouldn't say like What? hate it in terms of like couldn't have I could could have a piece if like forced to but But, yeah, I really don't like sushi. So, even as a person that doesn't like sushi at all, I just thought this was awesome. Like, it just... I don't, there's something about the perfectionism that really intrigued me and just something about the dedication to the craft that really pleased me. It's, and on a philosophical level as well, there's, there's something that I like about having, like, total control over something. Like... Because, like, we, we'll never have control over, like, big things. Like, if you're a snooker player or something like that, you can you can control pretty much, like, where your ball you're hitting and maybe, like, where the cue ball ends up. Yeah. And then, you know, you can kind of you, – you deal with the situation, right? So, you have to sort of condense the world down to stuff that you can manage, right? Yeah. This is, like, one of those ones where it's, like, sure, you think you can manage a sushi, um, a sushi bar, but, like – they they have to time everything so when they put it on your plate all the ingredients have been like perfected so everything is at the right temperature every sort of possible like variable has been accounted for so if you're left-handed they're going to serve it to you on your left if you're a woman they'll serve you like a slightly a little bit less so then everyone sort of digests it at the same time it seems kind of weird to me but yeah they'll just the the firmness of the tuna it just everything to the micro detail I just I don't know I, I really like that and I'm not quite sure why I like it but I do there's something just nice that like especially when you walk in and you can like completely relax like you don't have to think oh like obviously when you go into restaurants you're not assuming they're not going to give you a fork or something <laughs> but like when you go in and stuff and they are oh, damn don't have a soup spoon or something and you got to sort of like look around and find one and you know like you kind of just assume like you nothing like this happens like perfectly but i think the idea here is like as soon as you walk in the door 
they just cater to your everything that can possibly happen. So literally the perfect sushi experience. Yeah. And and to do that, they do need to like shrink down the things. Like they're not the serving ice cold beers because like it would just add in too many things that can sort of disturb the experience. Because they're not after a they're not batch producing like experiences. Like they're not just saying like, oh, we make great sushi. Like we just bring in the best ingredients and then slap it out and they'll love it. Like it's really like every day they make a new menu and then every time they serve it, it's it's got to be made to perfection that day. They're not just relying on their processes like in the regular way. Like with a with like McDonald's or something, they sort of, they know exactly how to make all the burgers but they're not exactly paying attention to like every burger because they just trust that you know all the ingredients are fine and they just put it in. But the this is a little bit different to where they're going to like adjust for any any change in the menu. They have to adjust the order that they put things out. It, it's like an undoable task. Like if someone hadn't done it, you would say to organize a restaurant like this would actually just be impossible. There'd be too many things to account for. But because he's done it. Now, you know, it's possible. So, yeah. It, yeah, it's quite interesting to me. The first thing I'll say is that I thought the, the movie itself was a bit slow uh, sometimes. And there were a few things that I kind of wanted to know about the about Jiro and his life that the movie doesn't touch. But other than that, the movie is really fine. I really love the music they used. But yeah, I think, Peter, you touched the most important thing. Like everything about Jiro and his philosophy and how he does things is... Is really interesting. I'll I'll just quickly mention that this a, a lot of what Jiro does and a lot of how he talks about what he does really reminded me of the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan, the the greatest basketball player. Like I was surprised at how many similarities between them there were. You know, Jiro he has extremely high standards in everything he does. He's strict with himself and with everyone who works under him. He's willing to do the same thing every day and he believes that he can still improve and he'll never allow himself to rest and not try to reach the next level. Really interesting stuff. It was really interesting to see how his kitchen works. Like Like you said, Peter, I loved seeing how they've perfected each step of each recipe in order to create the best dish out of the best ingredients even if the best thing to do isn't the most convenient way or or even if it's much slower from what i can tell like juro deserves a lot of respect for his achievements and you know i like some of his methods and philosophy even though i disagree with some of it which makes sense obviously and his story made me think about what i'm willing to do to be the best or the best at something you know Mm. um and and it made me think about where i would have to get to be satisfied you know like i don't think i need to be the absolute best at anything to be happy to be satisfied anyway there were a few interesting ideas presented in the movie i took away a few things i left behind a few others i don't know to me this movie was a glimpse into the philosophy and the life of someone who's the best and the absolute best at what he does a, a bit of a reminder that I'll never be the best at anything, but I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, what am oh, I going to do? <laughs> that took a sad turn. <laughs> I'll never be the best at anything, you know? Like, it's time to to wrap your hand around that, Barrio. You'll never be the best, like no one ever was. <laughs> I am, I will be. I will catch the ball. <laughs> I think you could actually draw the opposite lesson, because he's not 
he's not just magically going, oh, yeah, so I put the meat together with the rice and it works out perfectly. Like, he is actually a good example of how you, how things don't happen by chance. Like, he's, he's actually, he shows that actually doing everything can create perfection. Like, because he's actually perfecting each part of the process to reach the final product. So, it, it goes the other way, I think, as well. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of encouraging things in this as well. It's not all bad. <laughs> Barry, what do you think of the movie? Well, I started watching, then I stopped. I got on my scooter and went to get some sushi. <laughs> and, then, and then when I got back, I understood that probably most of the world is insulting the sushi <laughs> craft by what we do to sushi. Because I guess I always I always heard that like sushi is supposed to be like fine and delicate and the right amount of, of rice and fish above it. And we're like, let's dip it in 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 a cheap no, soy spicy sauce. mayo and <laughs> spicy put, mayo, yeah, <laughs> spicy mayo, and put uh, and fry it and put some uh, sugar ginger on it or whatever. Every time he looked at the camera, I felt he's judging me. Um, as a as a foodie, you know, it's it's really nice to see the process and the attention to details. And I do like I totally agree with. with with you, Peter, there's something amazing with focusing all your energy on on your craft and making it almost perfect. It's awesome that he keeps on saying that it's not perfect and he and he wants to keep on learning and keep on advancing and and evolving. But like it feels so perfect. And I gotta say that I read a bit about the, the movie. I kind of expected to see some kind of drama with with his sons. But there, there was no drama. Yeah, I sort of expected that, but it, yeah, it didn't. Yeah, come. yeah, no it drama. It was like, yeah, I have a, my younger son. He can't have the the place, so he went and opened another place. My eldest is getting trained, and actually, he's really, really good. But he's in Jiro's uh, shadow. Yeah, Yashikazu, the older son, is waiting to take his father's place. I checked it. He's sixty-one now, and he's still waiting. Like Jiro is 94 and is still going. <laughs> Can you imagine be 61 waiting to like be the successor of a business? It's, it's crazy. The only profession where that is relevant would be like a politician where you can be like 70 and like finally getting the job you want. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Like what happens if he just retires? Yeah. <sighs> that is crazy. Yeah. I kind of wanted the movie to show who who is next in line, like after Yoshikazu. Yeah, who's the trainee who made like bloody 200 big um, egg pancakes <laughs> and then they were all rejected out of hand and then he made one and then Jiro was like yes this is how it should be made and then he just he <laughs> just like broke down yeah yeah it was like I I think I cried when that happened I was just like <laughs> I was amazed I was like oh my god the this the trauma you know yeah, like, I was so happy that, for him that's when I realized it's a cult because it, it it just it's like this weird regimented hierarchy where you can after ten years in the cult you can like boil the egg and like <laughs> it it just like I just can't help but that like someone who just was there for like twenty years is gonna come out and work at another sushi train restaurant and just be like what it it's 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 like I can I can go home like it'll be like midnight and they're like what. <laughs> You know, like it, it just like they just don't know what 
human rights are, you know, <laughs> and they're, they're <laughs> under under Jiro, it's just like sushi is life. There's no doubt that it's a tough job, you know, to work under Jiro. But like, if you're really interested in cooking, if if you really want to do this as, as a career, like there's so much that you can learn there, right? I mean, it seems that everyone who works there for 10 years can go out and open your own place and definitely yeah. succeed yeah i think after you're there for 10 years you you it's, it's like it doesn't get any better than that yeah and it's great for the yeah. resume <laughs> yeah yeah great for the resume <laughs> let's talk about the food quickly let's talk about let's let's do talk about the food. <laughs> peter you said you didn't like sushi but like is there anything there that you would want to taste anything that tempted you anything that seemed interesting maybe uh, that live octopus that climbed on that guy's hand there uh, <laughs> holy crap yeah. yeah that was a uh, the worst part <laughs> that looked delicious <laughs> looking at like the, i'm just looking at the picture in the in the chat at the moment where yeah. jiro is just surrounded by a wall of sushi and um no nah, not really like i don't really like any of it but something i do like about this sushi compared to regular sushi is like most regular sushi is just like just one sort of big log and yeah. then they like cut it into pieces where this one is they're like little sausage rolls, but they're like the meat is sort of just like overhanging and it's like, it's very <laughs> weird shape. Like I think it's best exemplified. So, so with- disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> the, the master craft of this master chef, <laughs> you're comparing it to a sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Your sushi looks like sausages. Well, there's one that actually looks like a um, like a McLaren race car. It's a, it's like one of the ones with not the rawest, but like one of the most red tuna. It almost has like a beak on it. I, I like the look of that one. But um, actually eating them, mm-hmm. probably like the one I would least not like like most most like to try doesn't sound good. It, like the one that I would be most willing to try would be the egg sushi just egg <laughs> yeah because like i'm not really big on seafood and so mm. I, I i don't mind fish and chips but as soon as it gets into the more raw area then then i don't really like it and then tuna is like off the table for me completely so really yeah probably just that egg little sponge cake thing Barry, what about you? Because I know you like sushi and stuff, but is there something that you wouldn't try? Something that looks yucky? I would eat everything yep. twice. Same here. Everything looks just amazing. It looks like um, the food form of jewelry. <laughs> so beautiful. <Yeah>. And... <laughs> it does. It looks amazing. It looks so so delicious. There's one, the, the sea urchin, that sounds a bit weird to me. But I'll, I'll I'll give it a go. Why? Why? Why does it sound weird? It sounds sounds good. I don't know. I think it's the one uh, that looks a bit like maybe like egg. I don't know. Sea urchin sounds weird. I'll I'll, I'll taste it <laughs> because it sounds weird. Yep. Not because it looks weird. Yeah. Oh no, it looks okay. It looks fine. It looks yummy. <laughs> <laughs> and the shrimp one, the one with the shrimp, looks just great. Like I want that now. Yeah. So one thing about one big thing about the restaurant is that it. I think they said it was the first sushi restaurant in the world to receive three Michelin stars. But did you know that they lost their Michelin ranking last year? No. no. It's, it's interesting. It sounds horrible at first, but it, it makes sense after you hear the story. So the restaurant, as I said, is not a, a Michelin star winner anymore. And because one of the conditions that you have to meet to receive Michelin stars is to be a restaurant that is open to the public, right? And 
Jiro's place used to be open, like anyone could call in, make a reservation, and, and go eat there, but it's not anymore. And that is because last year, they changed their policy, and now, to eat there, you have to make reservations through a concierge of a specific luxury hotel, which sounds a bit snobbish, but the reason they changed their policy is because often, foreign tourists who made their reservations were late and screwed up their schedule. Mm. And in the restaurant's website, it says specifically that the rice and vinegared rice they prepare is made according to the time of the reservation, and it might not be as good if you come in late and, and you know, you screw up the, the schedule. So now to make sure that you're there on time, there's a specific concierge at a specific hotel that you have to make the reservation through, and that took away the, the Michelin stars ranking, which kind of sucks. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was... Well, you, you want to talk about their pricing? Yep. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Did you guys all convert it to your currency? I didn't. I was afraid to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did it straight away and uh, and like I thought that they weren't open to the public because of that, of that <laughs> price. According to what they say in the movie and in the website, they have 10 seats in the restaurant, right? And a meal costs 40,000 yen. In the movie, they say 30,000 yen, but their website now states 40,000 yen per person, which is around $380. So a 10-seater at $380 per person is $3,800 for every meal they serve. In a normal day, they do one lunch, one dinner. So that's $7,600. Five days a week, four a month, that's uh, just over $150,000 per month. That's a lot of money. Well, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a bargain, but um, I mean, Obama ate there, so... <laughs> Would you would you pay that much for something that's supposed to be like the best sushi in the world? I guess Peter, you wouldn't be interested in that. Yeah, it's an easier decision for me <laughs> because obviously I don't like the food. But it, look, if it was like a hundred, like I don't know, I don't know if it's worth converting it to us. But say if it was like maybe a couple hundred dollars, maybe like for you guys, maybe like hundred and fifty or something. I could see myself going there for the experience, you know, especially after watching the documentary. But ah, uh, that's that's a lot of money for like a meal. Yeah. So yeah, and you know what? I'd say just for the experience, maybe it's worth it. Like part of the experience is the fact that he's standing there preparing the sushi. Yeah, yeah. Either him or his son Yoshikazu, and then they just stand there and look at you as you're mm. trying it. So you can't be like the guy who you know, nibbles at it or just tastes the yeah. rice or the egg. There's very specific instructions for how you have to eat this on their website. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. yeah. They're not afraid to tell you you're wrong. No, they? not at all. They're very specific about that. Uh, there's a few points about their websites that I want to touch. Their website is great. The website is just fantastic. It's just one page. The strict attitude that, that you know, Jiro presents is totally present in the website you know <laughs> like you'll eat what we serve how we serve it attitude is all there like the first thing you see is a description of how sushi was traditionally served like on food stalls in the street you would stand in front of the stall sushi will be prepared and placed on a plate kind of like what you see in the in the movie and then you would eat it with your hands and leave and it says something along the lines of Traditionally, sushi was not served in a way that is convenient for chatting or drinking, and we tried to maintain the tradition. Which basically to me sounds like, come in, shut up, eat. 
That that sounds like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. A bit, yeah. No sushi for you. <laughs> Then they tell you not to be late, uh, which I mentioned earlier. And they also mention, you know, something that I kind of agree with is don't take pictures of the food. Like they urge you to enjoy it, um, which is fine. But they also say something that f- sounded a bit funny to me. If you want, after the dinner, you can take a photo in the doorway. <laughs> In the doorway, why? You're very specific about <laughs> how to I do things. Why would I want to take a picture there? <laughs> the only sure way of enjoying Jiro's sushi is to concentrate on dining. When you leave, we would be pleased to take a commemorative photograph for you at the doorway. Like, <laughs> they recommend not taking a picture of the restaurant. Like, if you want, when you leave, we'll take a picture of you going out. <laughs> Maybe they're saying about taking a picture with Jiro himself? I don't know. I, I think they don't say it. specifically, but yeah, I think that'll be, that'll be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, well, so the site mentions that there's no dress code, but if you wear colorless shirts, shorts or sandals, you might not be served, <laughs> which I think it's okay to not set a proper dress code, but you know, to set a certain bar, that actually don't, don't come in with sandals. The dress code is actually the most lax thing <laughs> in the whole website because Like they said, like, um, you, you know, most people wear jackets. You really want to have a collared shirt and not wear sandals. I thought, where's the gotcha? Like, like you have to wear like a traditional headdress. Or, <laughs> like, I was waiting for the shoe to drop of like <laughs> why I wouldn't be able to get in. Yeah. But it's all doable things. Definitely. So, Definitely. I, I was totally like, <laughs> I was totally expecting something that would just cancel like Half the population. Yeah. Like your, go- <laughs> your, your tie has to contain at least like <laughs> 50 grams of like gold or something. It has to be tied in a specific knot. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that, like that. That, that is exactly right. Like, a double Windsor only. <laughs> like otherwise you cannot, cannot enter. I think they mentioned like it's okay to put your jacket on your chair, but handbags have to go on a specific place and they'll take care of it for you. Like, you can't bring a handbag mm. in. And no strong perfume either. Yeah, they ask you not <laughs> to wear strong perfume, which I think it's, it's a great idea. Like, strong smells yeah. can interfere with the taste. So that, that totally makes sense to me. They mention that, the, you know, they encourage you to visit the place again. Like, they say that each season brings a different set of flavors, so it's worth coming back there. And then, you know, there's a, they call it an eating recipe. which is a 12 steps do's and don't do's of eating sushi, complete with pictures, <laughs> like how to pick it up with your fingers or how to pick it up with your chopsticks. They mention avoid spilling the sushi toppings and they instruct you how to do it. They mention that if like by chance they forgot to put the, the nikiri soy sauce over the sushi, then you can take the um, pickled ginger and use it as a substitute for a brush. There's absolutely no chance they would forget that. No, no absolutely way no at all. No way at all. That would be like tantamount to... That would be like a soccer player... Like, just bending down, gr- getting the ball, and just, like, doing, like, a big sort of, like, alley-oop throw into the goals. <laughs> like, that, that is, that would be the equivalent of, like, them forgetting to brush it. That is, it totally would never happen. They're, they're so strict about everything. They're so strict that they have a 12-step guide to eating their sushi. They'll never forget <laughs> the, the, the Nikiri soy sauce. <laughs> Let's talk about Jiro's philosophy. Like, his philosophy is basically... You have to love what you do. You have to strive for perfection. Never think you've done improving. Every detail matters, right? And 
like I said, there's a lot of similarities between Jiro and, and Michael Jordan. You can almost substitute what they say and it'll still be relevant. Do you guys think that you can apply anything from that philosophy in your life? Yeah, I was thinking about this actually. And I was like, what is there something that I can like just become like this Jiro god at, you know, like, <laughs> and I was thinking about my work and that is like sort of the the goal for my work. Like, it's just to be on top of everything. Can, can you apply that philosophy to your work? I try to. It's just like a, the system is so complex that, and I don't even mean it's like tax is hard, but I just mean like when you get so many emails, like the equivalent of Jiro, if Jiro could be as good at, <laughs> <laughs> my job as it is, he would just be able to like cite documents from memory and just get told verbally like what their <laughs> incomes are. And he just, he would just be like a human calculator, like spit <laughs> out the the things, you know, he could just visualize your financial statements. Like he would just know what it would look like, you know? And, but so it is like a, a ridiculous standard, but there's something about it where like, just any question that was posed to you, you've got an answer. Like to just be really good at something, you know, like even if it's not like your whole job, but just always having like a perfect like email response yeah. that like perfectly like balances um, sort of candor, but also like trying to get exactly what you need, you know, and like there's, there's a certain like art to like perf- getting better every time, especially the things you do a lot. Like emails is one of the things you do a lot, but even just like simple things, you know, remembering what charities are tax deductible and stuff, just building up your own sort of recall and stuff. Like it, there's definitely like an element in my job of sort of something will be in your working memory and you'll be able to like talk about it and, But then a month later, you'll get a call about it and you'll just be like, what? Like, you can't even pronounce the name. Like, it's it's just gone out (laughs) of your mind. But there'd be something that would be nice to actually slowly become better at remembering things. So, like, yeah, I, I can imagine applying it to my job. But I think more realistically, it would be nice to apply it to something more, more like a hobby. Yeah. You know, if you're just making jewelry or something like that, just like really spending time to actually really perfect it and even things like guitar just like just getting really good at the basics yeah like for me i i look at it as like getting good at the basics and then anything like harder is just becomes easier so like really good foundations but yeah like there's it also inspired me to sort of find something so not necessarily that i have going now but just find something that i can like spend time on to like really get like fantastic at yeah. and it's never going to be something like soccer because you're never going to be able to like do in a robotic way something like as complex as the game of soccer and just become like a master at it when there's people constantly trying to outdo you and stuff because it is yeah, it's too dynamic yeah it, it would have to be something like getting really good at like chess or getting really good at like making like wallets out of leather or something like you have to pick something with a small locus of control but let let me ask you this if your job is i don't know serving people or cleaning cars i I don't know something like let's say cleaning cars you can be the perfect car cleaner like you can be mechanical and kind of robotic in that but would you be able to be content with improving your cleaning technique 
every day for the rest of your life? Oh, well, I could see a situation where you were keen to do that. Like, there is something nice about doing something with your hands perfectly. You're like, obviously, you can just wipe down the whole car, but like, as you as you just run your hand over all the surfaces, if you know exactly like what surfaces are going to go well with what type of sprays and wipes and all this stuff, it, yeah, you just know all the all the ways it can possibly work out. And I, I think it would be something nice about that. Imagine that you have to like order a month ahead to a car wash and it costs, uh, a, it costs about 44,000 yen to get your car washed. And it's the best washing experience. Experience Like if your car is small, then you'll get the small brushes or sponges. There's only one, one cent and you can't choose... Uh, how your car will smell later. <laughs> and they reserve the right not to serve you if you're not, like, dressed properly inside the car. <laughs> because it's so exquisite. And while you wait, you can only <laughs> drink jasmine tea. <laughs> yeah, and there's, like, smooth jazz playing everywhere. But, yeah, so even if you are the best car washer in the world, no one will recognize that. No one will pay attention to that. Like... Jiro, you know, the fact that he's running his own restaurant and he's doing something that people can appreciate, that, that's a specific, a very specific position to apply that philosophy in. It is, but I think you have to do it on some level for yourself. I totally agree. There's something very inspiring, very, very beautiful about that. You know, like, I'm, I'm just trying to think about examples myself of like what you could apply this philosophy to. Like, this is a weird one, so I don't know if you, it'll quite hit home for you guys, but... If you were, like, a dealer in poker at a casino, right? Mm. Like, I'd, I'd imagine, like, your first maybe two or three years, you'd sort of have to be constantly thinking about just the rules. Like, because you don't want to screw up. Yeah, every variation of every uh, eventuality. Every variation of every hand. Yeah. yeah. And, like, even just a moment's hesitation. You, you wouldn't go through a perfect night without having a few tiny hiccups. Yeah. Even if it's just like when you shuffle or something like that, like you didn't perfectly bind them together when you kind of separate the two decks. But like there'd be like small little things that you could always make better. But then once you master the basics, once like you're not even really consciously comprehending the game, you just hear the, the syllables you need and then you just automatically click into action. After that, you could get really good. Like the same thing with Jiro. Like if you know someone is left-handed, you flick your cards to the left hand, you get really good at flicking. You know, just the way you shuffle can look effortless. And You, you don't know, have to just... think about the game so you can pay attention to every detail. Yeah, yeah. So it could just get really fluid and just everything is under your control, even though there are other people at the table. But having something else at the table as well is also kind of interesting. So it's not the same every time. There's enough that this is, there's the same, and but there's a little bit of difference. So, but yeah, th there'd be just something nice about really sort of getting amazing at something like that, especially something you do all the time. Yeah. Something Jiro said that I liked when he, I think at the, at the beginning of the movie, he kind of told his secret to success and happiness. And as part of that, something that I really liked is that he said that you first have to decide what you want to do. Like, you first have to find a job that you like, and then you have to fall in love with it. Like, instead of locking onto a dream job, you know, like a, a, a putting something on a pedestal and then finding out that it sucks and you're stuck, it's, it's something that I totally agree with. But 
on the other hand, it, it kind of seemed like he didn't really let his kids have that experience, you know? He totally, like, they, I think at some point they said that they both wanted to go to college, and he just said, no, come make sushi with me. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to be a race car driver, yeah. <laughs> and, and no, you're going to make really sushi, and you're going to make it really slow. For the rest of your life, and you'll never be the big boss. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm never going to die. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> something that I, I don't know, kind of thought about a few times while watching this movie is that I kind of wanted to see more of Jiro's life and his son's life outside of the restaurant like you know I, I, I bet they're proud of their work and they're happy people it kind of seemed like everything in their life was just the restaurant and that can't be really you know there, there has to be more you know I kept wondering about their lives outside the restaurant Like, there's a scene where Jiro goes to meet his childhood friends, but even that felt like a special occasion and not like something he does after work, you know? Because I know it's not really important, but the restaurant makes a bunch of money, and that made me interested in how Jiro lives. Is he living in a small, humble house, or does he live in a castle? I wanted to know how his trainees get paid, you know? I, I, I wanted to know that they get paid well, you know? I wanted to know that they're happy... I don't know. There was more that I wanted to see. I, it kind of felt like they're, they're showing just a small part of their lives. And maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's a major part. Obviously, it's a major part, the, the restaurant. But there has to be more that I wanted to know about. Yeah, I, I, can, I can relate to that. Yeah, it felt like there's another layer in their lives that, that is missing. So I can't really put myself in their shoes. You know, like if you're looking at the story... There's something missing to really relate to them and see where you fit in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, like, I... Jiro made a few comments about how he didn't really get along with his parents or they didn't really do anything for him. Yeah. And then he sort of just says, but oh well, you know, that happens. And now I can't quite see, like, because the, the reaction from that I expected to e- to be something... More like, oh, so this is why I'm acting such and such way with my sons. And, and like, I see that a little bit. Like, I see his philosophy represented in his fathering. But in another way, like, I, I just, I don't know if he fully has done any introspection on what his childhood was like and, and how he treats his sons. I, I, I just, it doesn't seem like a... Mm. He didn't seem like a person to me that had thought very deeply about it. Yeah, that's, that's true. He treats his sons like like well, and he often is quite forceful, but overall the meaning is, is loving. But the way he was treated is pretty much there, there wasn't as much love and he didn't really keep up with his parents. Like they died and he didn't really – he didn't go to the funeral or anything. It just seems like there's there should be an like if to change my mind he would have to come up with an account as to what his um parents had an effect on him that he is passing on or isn't passing on to his sons and I just didn't hear anything that would explain the linkage yeah. you know it just they could have been two separate people yeah The way that he, he was treated by his parents has uh, absolutely no bearing on how he's treating his sons. Like, I just don't understand if there's any, if he even made the connection himself. 
if he goes, oh, maybe that's why I'm parenting this way or or um, I'm never going to make that mistake. Like, I just don't know if he's ever confronted those questions yeah. or if it's laid a little bit below the conscious level for yeah, him. Yeah, it kind of seemed like he put it behind him and just did what seemed right to him. Another another impression that I got from this movie is that I, they didn't really show... I don't know if they... Maybe I missed it. I don't know. But it kind of seemed like there isn't too much innovation going on there in terms of cooking these days. Do you guys think so too? Because, I mean, they, they mentioned a few times that he dreamt of sushi and made up new dishes and stuff, mm. but they never told us, like, this dish is a Jiro invention or this is something new that Jiro came up with. It seemed like maybe at the beginning he was, you know, making up new stuff or or making up new dishes or anything. But like, I don't know, it seemed like what makes their food stand out is the attention to details and the perfected methods. But they didn't show a lot that points at still inventing new dishes and styles or anything, I think. Like, they, they talked about it, but they didn't show it. You know, it kind of felt missing. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to, to raise that as well. Because they, he keep talking about learning and evolving and creating new stuff, but you never actually see him. Yeah. Does any of that? Yeah, it felt like they're still maybe, like, I don't know, perfecting the way that they're handling the rice or the, the still kind of perfecting the, you know, finding the perfect temperature to cook, like, new types of fish that they're using today. I don't know. But, like, it doesn't seem like there's creativity anymore. That's true. I didn't really think about it to be honest, but now you bring it up. Yeah, that's a good point. There's nothing that, that he he never sort of presented like, this is something I'm working yeah. on or this is like my most recent invention. Or Let's try it, this. It, it very much came down to perfecting processes rather than sort of actually presenting something that from the outside would just be radically different. Yeah, yeah that's a good point, actually. That would have been nice to see if, if he was actually sort of doing stuff that, had never been done, you know. At one point, they did talk about the way that they, they're keeping the rice kind of like in room temperature. Yeah. So they can serve it In body fresh. temperature. But Yeah, and they said that this is kind of a way that um, none of their competitors are yeah. doing. So maybe mm. that's a bit... I don't know. It kind of felt like the movie was kind of a, just a bit avoiding a few topics. Like innovation like the way they're living outside of the restaurant i don't know, like maybe maybe he is living in a huge fucking castle and they just didn't want to show it to us <laughs> or uh, another thing that kind of i just uh, just wanted a little bit more of is to see how he is with the trainees because it they didn't show the it disciples disciples yeah. <laughs> they didn't show it too much and followers may, yeah <laughs> and maybe it's because he's yelling at them and he's you know, just a grumpy old son of a bitch. And, and <laughs> maybe they just avoided that and it felt missing. I don't know. But he's such an old and likable guy. Come on. Can't you see it? <laughs> it just seems <laughs> yeah, so I'm obvious. Yeah, looking in his face and I want to hug him. It, I, it does feel like a conspiracy. Like, can you imagine though? If you're like, all right, documentary is over. Now get back to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, your egg pancake, not good. Do it again. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, that would surprise me. That would really surprise me. I don't think it's the case. I don't I don't either. But I don't know. There is like a lack of awareness, of self-awareness. I don't know. They just seem so like involved in it, that thing. You know, they're like in a bubble. A bit. Is there anything in your life that like, for instance, is there anything that you wouldn't trust anyone else to do that you have to do yourself? 
Because I imagine when Jiro goes to other sushi places, it would just be a one long face palm yeah. <laughs> because he would just say like, no, just no, sit there not with like his hands crossed and, he, and, and nodding his head like, no, 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 no. It would just be like no. sludge to him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did. I also imagined that when I was eating uh, sushi from you know this crappy place around the corner, um, I was imagining what will happen if if Jiro ate one of of those sushi and i i'm pretty sure that he would just spit it out mm. like he could never he, he wouldn't ever be be able to chew on it for more than once if he'd even give it a go like i don't know if he'd even try it <laughs> yeah so was there anything in your life that you like that about uh hmm. maybe you know what that would sound a bit snobbish but no one makes a better playlist like for driving than me or or put music in the car like me <laughs> i love driving and whenever i drive i you know i let whoever sits in the seat next to me choose the music but whenever i'm not driving i get to choose the music because i don't put a playlist on you know i choose the next song and while that song plays i choose the next one by yeah. <laughs> how how everyone's reacting to the music the mood. yeah exactly yeah. so no one does that better than me I am the Jiro of choosing music in the car. <laughs> Whenever someone else does it, I, I, I'm, it's not good enough. Never good enough. <laughs> That's a good one, actually. I'm going camping this weekend. And um, like when I go camping, because I did this like last time, I like to just play a full album. But usually we have enough time to go throughout two or three, depending on the length. And I just, I just know in my heart what the right thing to play is. It has to have like a certain amount of atmosphere, but it has to be cer a certain amount of like, not psychedelicness, but like just a certain like um, frequency of sort of, it can't be completely like dosed in reality. It has to be sort of a <laughs> bit, bit of like a concept album in my eyes. And um, like the person I'm going with, like, yeah, I can, oh, I'll just put on the music and I just have less than no faith that just that'll put be on a the good music time. no no that's not yeah good <laughs> like it'd be like someone talking to jiro like, oh well i mean whenever you're ready just let me know i'll put on the rice and it's just like what <laughs> yeah i'll just microwave the tuna <laughs> yeah well, if it's not hot enough we'll just you know put it in the in the we'll just zap it for a couple yeah. of seconds <laughs> what about you barrio what, what are you the best at i got that's the thing. I gotta say, I can't. I can't think of anything. I'm completely disposable. You, you can <laughs> replace me with, with anyone for anything. Uh, like I'm really, really trying to. Well, I guess there is. Like there, are, there are certain areas in in my job where probably I I'm the most experienced and 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 have the most knowledge in. Yeah. But you know, it's nothing really special. Like like anyone can learn that. It's not. It's not that difficult you're the best you um, that i know oh, that doesn't say much either <laughs> nope <laughs> for me i will never trust anyone making tea that's oh. not of my own making oh. and, like and it's a very simple thing i'm not doing anything odd like it's it's just the amount of tea and how long to brew it and the temperature of the water, the amount of water. And for me, I stick pretty much, I don't have a special recipe. I'm not going off book. If like the, the tea says to do it three to five minutes at 100 degrees, you know, one tablespoon per cup, 
that's what I'm going to do. Like if it's 500 mils, um, I'll do two. If it's 350, I'll do like just under one and a half and then it'll be a hundred. So what, when the kettle boils, not boil it and come back later and then use it. And also just like three minutes, not between two and 10 minutes, you know? So like it's, it's not like a big demand or in my eyes, it's not a big demand, but when someone does it, wrong it it definitely does feel like a big demand to them so i i like this movie i think it took a few like i th- there were a few kind of inspiring ideas that i you know i really liked and i'll try to add them to my general life philosophy but i don't know i'm I, I, like i said i'm not sure if jero is a sweet old guy or a grumpy old man i don't know and i guess it. To be the best at what you do, you have to be at least a bit weird and do things in a way that's not perfectly pleasant. What are you going to do? And throughout the movie, I was trying to put myself in Jiro's shoes or his trainee's shoes or his disciples' shoes and imagine how I'd feel. And honestly, it kind of made me think about how I'm approaching things in my own life and everything. So it did get me thinking quite a bit, which is a good thing. And on the other hand, I feel that like when you tell the story of someone who's the best in the world at something, I want to see as many aspects of their lives as possible. I want to see the complete picture. And I felt that the movie kind of missed that point by a bit. All in all, I, I liked it. I had, I had fun watching it. I had fun thinking about it. And just one thing, don't watch this movie when you're hungry. I had the worst <laughs> experience with that. <laughs> I almost died from drooling by the end <laughs> <laughs> yeah same thing here that but i but in the beginning that's why i went to sushi. <laughs> uh for me to be honest I, I felt a little bit more positively than you and non I, I i really enjoyed it for what it was like i um i just had such a relaxing time watching it and like i really i i just didn't notice the time at all when i was watching it i just I was so absorbed into it and I was having such a pleasant time. I thought at moments it was funny and it was it was um, informative. And there was a few moments of like like flickers of of oddness with just uh, just um Jiro's relationship with his parents yeah. and 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 this and the brief escapade into sort of overfishing. <laughs> like there were a few moments there but if, if to the not to to someone's eye that's not as detailed as Jiro, it is actually a very nice documentary. So if you're not the Jiro of documentaries, I would actually wholeheartedly recommend it. And um, yeah, so I had a really great time. I'd say like just some of my doubts are more like when I'm considering it as like compared to other documentaries. Sometimes I'm not. Like I realize, like if I have to critique it, there are critiques that you can make. But um, just as a sensory experience, it, it's a lot of fun, especially if you like sushi. I don't, I don't even <laughs> like sushi, so I mean, factor that in. Yeah, I can say as a sushi lover, it's been really great. It gives sushi the respect it deserves. I enjoyed it. It's not, uh, it's not life changing, but definitely worth a watch. A late night watch with some sushi on the side, yeah. So, as we do, at the end of each step of our quest, we're going to take a vote that will decide whether or not Jiro Dreams of Sushi has a place in the Culture Quest Essentials Guide. We will each have a chance to persuade each other and state our case for or against the documentary's induction to the Quag, and then we will vote 
with a gentlemanly tip of the hat for yay or an ominous stroke of the mustache for nay. And the vote must be unanimous in order for it to pass. My fellow adventurers, let's have a vote. So I think that this experience was a positive and fun one. It made me introspect a bit. Uh, it made me think about how I do things and what I, I want to achieve in life. So that's, a, I think, a pretty big positive. Um, on the other hand, I kind of feel that the, as a documentary, it wasn't great. Like, there were a few things that I wanted to see. Um, I mentioned them before, like about his life outside the restaurant, about how much innovation goes on there these days, which I felt they kind of avoided, maybe. I might be way off here, but I feel that this movie missed a few important bits. And while the story it tells is really thought-provoking, the movie itself is just a bit lacking. I thought it was just super fun movie to watch. Definitely, if you've ordered in sushi and looking for, for something <laughs> to watch, this um, this might be the thing for you. And it's certainly <laughs> a nice thing to watch when you're not looking for something too intense. Just like a Sunday night. Is that is that a... If I said like a Sunday night movie, what does that mean in Israel? Because for me, Sunday night is the first is the last day before Monday, and Monday is like nationally like the first day of work for the week. But is that the same for you guys? Not at all. Like I think we're probably one of the I don't know, there's not a lot of places around the world where our Sunday is like your Monday. Oh, so Sunday you start. Yeah, exactly. Work. Sunday actually in Hebrew we call Sunday first day you know it's the first day of the week oh, okay. so and your weekend it's friday saturday i always thought it's weird that like sunday like internationally is is a day off because it's the first day of work like according to well tradition. even when we buy less so now because like we have a lot of calendars made in australia but um before when everything was made like elsewhere um, and you'd buy calendars, Sunday would be the first day in the calendar. Like, you'd be in the very left column. Mm. So, I, that's not totally foreign to me that it could be, Sunday could be the first day of the week. But, um, no, nah, it's, it's, it's like nationally Monday. But, yeah. so your weekend is Friday, Saturday. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that's a funny thing because, like, when we started this podcast and we, I thought about when to put out the episode, when to publish the episode, I saw a lot of posts on Reddit and stuff talking about that. And they all said... The best time to publish your episode is right at the beginning of the work week mm. because that's when everyone has, starts their commute and everyone's kind of, you know, down because they have a full week of work ahead of them. And so I said, cool, that makes sense. I'll publish our episodes on Sunday. And I forgot that we're the only place around the world that starts working on a Sunday. So basically, we're putting out our episodes in the middle of the weekend. <laughs> well, um, so like on a Saturday night, are all your bars, like do they all close a little bit earlier than Friday night? Maybe a bit, yeah. Because like everyone goes to work the next day. Yeah, they get, I don't know if they close earlier, but they get yeah. empty earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if I said like, oh, this is like a nice Saturday night movie, does we that- We convert it to a Friday night movie. It- yeah, it's Friday. Night. Oh, okay. So this is a so this is a it, like I'll just say it. This is a good Sunday night movie. So like, if you're looking to wind down, getting ready for the work week, or yeah, getting ready for your Tuesday. Man, this is confusing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, then, then it is then it is a Saturday night movie. Yeah, you guys have the Monday morning blues or whatever you guys call it. Yeah, we yeah. call it. It kind of literally translates into. Broken Dick Sundays, I, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, to say I my, my, my dick is broken or, or I have a broken dick is to say, you know, I'm sad, I have the blues. 
So yeah, we have the broken dick Sundays. <laughs> But I gotta say, that it's not it's not like it's not like a broken dick, like because there's a, a slang word for it, so you don't really think <laughs> about a dick when you're saying that. There's kind of a, a portmanteau of a broken dick that we we say. <laughs> We've definitely earned a small little e for explicit on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, for this little Hebrew lesson. <laughs> this is a bit of a like a, a detour, but um, my my fear of like. Uh, my my fear in just like in terms of always having to like convert like money to other currencies like for instance if they said it's like forty mm. thousand yen and I have to like convert that to you know five hundred Australian dollars and then it means something well there's like certain countries that like <laughs> that they've been using the euro or something and then their currency it's like sucked out of population and then they start using the euro. But like, I would always be like, "Oh, what was this in my old currency?" Like, trying to convert it back to something that doesn't exist anymore, just to try to understand yeah. like how much I am paying for things, and like, no matter how much yeah. like you you use the currency, like you just you never really understand the value of money again because it's, it's like no value to you. Like, like the value of forty thousand yen is just the value that you could convert it to something. Like Australian dollar, yeah. but the like forty thousand is just this, this weird amount of paper. So, <laughs> so where were we? I think we were doing closing remarks and voting. I think I had done. I've definitely ran out of time, so I yield. <laughs> um, Barry, do you want to make your case? It's always it's always hard going last because everything has been said. It's a nice relaxed movie. It lacks a couple of key features that you would expect from a good movie. It's fun for sushi lovers. It's fun to eat sushi in front of it. It's fun being judged by Jiro when you're eating your sushi when he looks at the camera. <laughs> um, and not a, not an incredible masterpiece. Not a life changing experience. Just plain old fun. All right. Should we vote? Who wants to vote first? I'll vote first. Go for it. Uh, so when I was watching it, I I was I was pretty happy, and I was like, oh, you know what? This is simple. It does what it does well. I reckon I could probably give it a vote, like because I'm always looking for reasons to give things a vote. But after this conversation, I'm kind of thinking I I do want to save my vote for the for because there's so many good food documentaries out there, and I really do want to save it for something I'm like super proud of, not just think is a nice mm. movie to watch. So it, even though it is quite enjoyable to me, I, I I'm just gonna. Um, I'm going to give it an ominous stroke of the mustache. Just exactly that. There are so many good food documentaries. Then this, yeah, this gets a stroke of the mustache. An ominous stroke of the mustache from me as well. How, by the way, you know, I wanted to ask, like I got it from the, uh, from the list that you made. How, uh, how did you come yeah, across? Yeah, just before we started this podcast, I compiled like a, a Google Sheets file that you can see on our website with uh, you know a bunch of potential uh, things that we can do like a bunch of ideas and you know when i was making that file i just googled i don't know something like the best documentaries or 50 documentaries you have to watch before you die or something like that and i just went over a few lists and got a few ideas like i think men on wire no men on wire didn't come from that peter you got men on wire from that somewhere is my fault yeah <laughs> but so i just found a few documentaries that sounded interesting just to add to the list like i didn't know a lot about it when we did this so that's the second documentary we've done that is in the um i'm in a stroke winner three stroke 
prizey. I don't know how to call it. We'll have to find We're a word for this. We're not calling it the three-stroke uh, prize. That that's not happening. <laughs> three-stroker, <laughs> a triple stroker. <laughs> So let's talk about what we're going to do next. On our next episode, we're going to discuss Fight Club, but not Fight Club the movie from 1999, Fight Club the book from 1996. The book was written by someone who, whose name I'll practice before next episode, Chuck Palahniuk, Palahniuk, Palahniuk? No idea how to say it, but the movie is based on the book. And we've all seen and loved the movie. We've talked about it before. I would guess it's one of the most popular films ever. And I remember the first time I watched it, I was a teenager. We watched it at a, at a friend's house in this sleepover party, and I was shocked by it. Like, I remember that this movie made me realize that movies were more than just simple entertainment, but they could make deeper points and teach you things and stuff. And I always like reading the books on which movies are based on. I tend to think that the book version, like the original version that was created for this specific type of media, is usually the better version. And there definitely are a bunch of exceptions to that. But off the top of my mind, I can think of only one, uh, The Prestige. I really love the book, The Prestige by Christopher Priest. But in the movie, they changed things a bit and cut out a few things that I, I, I liked about the book. But I think that overall, they made the, the movie better. And... We'll mostly discuss the book as its own thing, um, but we'll also compare it to the movie and discuss the differences between them. What do you guys think? As you know, I did, I me I did mention it in one of my top list things of movies, but... Um, yeah, in one of the lockdown yeah, episodes. It, it, I, it's actually been a while since I've seen it, so which is good. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it and, and I'll watch it again as well just to refresh my memory. But... Um, yeah, to me, it's one of those ones where I never really understood the philosophy behind it, but I like it anyway. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't really understand it all, but, um, or as yet, I haven't, I haven't gone through the book. So, there's definitely something interesting there. And if there isn't anything interesting there, it would still be interesting why there wouldn't be anything interesting. You know, like, there seems like there's something to get there. What? Hmm. I, I, can, I can explain that. Um, like, <laughs> everyone seems to be very interested in not just the movie, but just the philosophy behind the movie. And if it turned out that that philosophy was just bogus and <laughs> it wasn't an interesting philosophy because it just, it just is just stupid, it would still be interesting to see why so many people fell for the allure of that philosophy, you know? Yeah. So, it'd still be interesting even if it wasn't interesting. Yeah, even if it's just like cheap philosophy, you know, like nothing meaningful at all. I have this feeling that it might be, but like, and it's like a good joke on everyone reading it, like if they're going to fall for it. But- that would still be interesting if that was the case. In fact, it would be super interesting. Yeah, but that's a very good point, actually. Like, I didn't even consider that. I My understanding of the philosophy in the movie was always shallow. Like, I always felt like I'm missing a lot of things to make it work. And I don't know, I'm going to deep dive into that because I, I, I am interested in it. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll do my best to understand what's going on there uh, after I'll read the book. Bro, what do you think? I, I love the movie. I And I kind of think that I did understood 
the philosophy, you know, just like very anti-capitalism, very nihilist. But, but what I did feel with the movie is that I was kind of missing uh, that there are a lot of things happened behind the scenes. So I was really excited when you, you suggested doing um, it, the book because like this is probably will be a, a good way to understand, you know, what the hell's I'm J- Jack's liver or something. Kind of like watching any Matrix after watching The Matrix. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I really like this movie. I really hope to understand it better. I think it's a great pick. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And honestly, it's only 200 pages. It's very short. I'm interested to see how they'll fit the whole story in there. And uh, not to spoil anything or, or, you know, nothing at all. But, like, I think that the author of the book said that he liked the ending of the movie better than the ending of the book. Mm. So none of us know how the book ends. So it'll be interesting to know to see how we react to that, what we'll, we, we end up liking. Yeah. So thank you, Peter. And thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Arigato. Yeah, damn it. The Culture Quest Podcast is part of All the People Network. Visit our website at culturequestpodcast.com to contact us or see a list of our upcoming episodes. Follow us on Twitter at CQ underline podcast and tell your friends about us. Find out more information about All the People Network and the other podcasts it includes at allthepeoplenetwork.com. Ich bin ein Science! Science! Cannabinoids! Genetics! Coronavirus! Dogs! This is Petri Dish. Science! Science! We're a science podcast exploring complex subjects with clarity and evil humor. Join the scientific revolution. Join Petri Dish, dropping every Monday on anchor.fm slash Petri Dish. Ha.